This episode of The Cruelest Month deals with the subject of suicide. If you or someone you know needs help or support, please contact your local crisis center. John. Hello, Anthony. Hello, Michael. Welcome to the Pick Apart for Survivors, uh, April 19th, 1985. Um, So let us jump into this. Let me, well, actually, first, let me say a little bit about Pick Apart. Um, If you've listened to the George Atzerote Pick Apart, you know that we, uh, we here at The Cruelest Month talk about the themes and the tropes and the, the, Essentially, it's a chance for the actors to pick apart what the writer did and say, why'd you do that? Mm-hmm. Um, preferably exactly in that tone of voice, which would be hilarious to me. Uh, <laughs> so we are here with um, Anthony Michael Martinez, who played uh, Stephen. Hello, Anthony. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. And we are here with Michael Raver, who played Tom. Hello, welcome, welcome. Um, So I actually kind of wanted to start off with something that never really occurred to me until probably the second time I heard this, um, which was when I suddenly was listening to this and I thought, did I just do a stereotypical bury your gaze? (laughs) And I suddenly thought, is that possible as a queer person? Did I actually just write that? And I don't know if that literally just occurred to me or if it occurred to you guys when you were reading it, um, but sort of it's the trope that's in the air. So let's start with that. Well, you said it, do you mind expanding on what you mean by that? What you mean by, did you just write that? What And what, what do you mean by that? Sure, so the bury your gaze trope um, is essentially let's kill off the queer character in service to another character's storyline, generally a straight character, but um, you know, let's kill off the queer character so that we don't have to deal with kind of anything that might not appeal to a broader, larger audience. Um, and I, I suddenly thought, oh yeah, I have not only done what they did in those, those you know, the 1960s, the, the advice and consent in those very early you know, boys in the band to an extent um, where you had those very early um, film stereotypes of, of let's punish the gays by having them kill themselves. Let's punish the gays by having them, you know, uh, off themselves in the name of a, a larger storyline to make everything better. Um, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did, what, did this literally only occur to me? It may have. I have a very strange train of thought. Uh, I mean, it didn't obviously occur, I think, uh, to us that, you know, there's a, a death is imminent of a gay character. Um, the the thing I will say is that I think with what you wrote, it's not, it's not really cut and dry that way in terms of a, a trope, um, because the the era that this play addresses and the the people that this play addresses, that was the reality. Yeah. So that would be, I mean, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I feel like that would be like writing about, you know, pre-1940s in, you know, Eastern Europe and not addressing mass genocide. Like the, mm-hmm. you know, so the, so that's one thing, um, and particularly because AIDS is the is a um, is sort of the the ghost in the room that is you, you know um, the other thing, like you said, I mean it's not in service. Like he's not dying in service of I don't th- I don't see the play as uh, being a, about someone that's dying so that someone else benefits. He does obviously say things like I you know I'm going to give you money so that you can travel and stuff but 
Um, and there is an element of, because uh, my character was is sort of so repressed and that Anthony's character is sort of the opposite that, you know, there is an element of like learn from my mistakes, like just try to move your needle over a little bit. But I don't, I don't think that it's like, um, what is that, that black trope, the magical Negro trope? Like, I don't think that, that it's falls into the same box. I agree. I don't feel that my reaction to it wasn't that at all. I think the pulse of it is, is so much about the tremendous love that the two of them have for each other. And it, obviously, it, to what Michael is saying, it, it was the reality. And so uh, I think it's important to, it's redeeming in a sense that you are depicting the truth and the the incredible danger and fear that was so prevalent and, and in a way exists today and, and a mentality as well. But I think the, what I love the play does is that there's no, it's not necessarily someone wins or not, no one really wins. But what does win is the, um, I think the underlying love that kind of, um, uh, the spirit of their relationship, the spirit of community, and the spirit of um, brotherhood that I think exists within the gay community. And for those who have, uh, of course, went through such crises. Um, yeah. Yeah. Did you guys, had you done, I, I'm old. I'm very, very old. No, so, you're not. <laughs> bless your heart. Thank no. you. Um, so I was, I was alive when that first New York Times article came out. I was in fifth grade. Um, and just to sort of give a little perspective, I had just finished fifth grade when that New York Times article came out, gay cancer. Uh, the first time Ronald Reagan said the word AIDS at a press conference, which was in response to a question about um, allowing children with AIDS to go to school. Um, so the first time the president said anything publicly, I was a sophomore in high school. First time he mentioned it in a speech, I was a senior in high school. Um, so, so just to sort of give a little kind of historical perspective, but it was very much still a part of, of gay life, everyday gay life. When I was growing up, when I was coming out, when I was first dating and becoming sexually active. Um, so I knew what was going on because I was reading it. I was kind of, I was young, but I was living it. Um, but you guys are from a different generation. So I'm wondering how much history did you know in the sense of, um, you know, what actually happened? I feel like we sort of forget history sometimes, just in general, culturally in the US, I think we forget history. Anthony, you wanna take this? I, I feel versed uh, with the history, of course, and I have many friends and dated many older men <laughs> who have um, shared with me their uh, firsthand experience with this. So none of what, uh, what was in the script was something that I felt out of touch with, um, nor unaware of. So um, that's how I'd answer it. Um, yeah, and I, I think um, in 2013, I went through, I went through like a sort of a rough breakup. And in that, in the way that you do, when you go through breakup, everything in your life gets reevaluated. And one of the things that I, did during that evaluation was I realized I had some gaps in my ancestry. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to, I felt like I needed to know uh, some things that I didn't. And this, this included literature and pop culture references because as far as like gay history, like I was like, I, I got Oscar Wilde and, and let's be realistic. I got Shakespeare. Like I understand that stuff and I understand how I feel now, but there were some things that I didn't know. And so I did things like I read Lost Language of Cranes and like all of these books that were sort of seminal for their, some Gore Vidal, like all of those things that were kind of seminal for their era. Um, uh, as far as the, um, the way that it's interesting, um, I don't want to speak too much out of school, but like when that relationship ended, it was the first time that I had to get, uh, because of some improprieties on my other half, my former other half, I had to get uh, an HIV test. And it was the first time that I was having that test where I didn't know what the answer was. Mm. And 
so I went to uh, a, a doctor's office to get the test and everything. And there was a very nice, like 24 year old ish nurse. Um, and she was very gentle with me. And I told her basically nothing. Um, she did the test. I got good news. <laughs> um, and then uh, as soon as the test was over, I fell apart. And I was completely surprised by that. And when I asked her why, she was like, this is, if you think this is bad, and it was impressive that this was coming out of like a 20 something year old girl's mouth, that she said, if you think this is intense for you, think about how this must have been for people where they didn't know anything. And and it was a death sentence. Yeah. And I mean, the, I've had some friends that uh, that just some gentlemen who are of you know, older generations who have told me I had a I have a friend who was in essentially in two long term, very long term, serious relationships where they both died of AIDS um, and he's still around. And it's I think it gives me a lot of respect uh, and uh sort of admiration for gay men who are in, you know, the, an older generation. The other thing that I want to say is that this is the, we're just now experiencing, uh, like presently, just experiencing the first time where there is a, an out intact generation of gay men who are aging. Yeah, I remember so a couple of things. I remember the first time I got tested because you had to wait. It was, I want to say 92, 91. And I remember you had to wait at least a week. The yeah. test was still anonymous. So you had yeah. to like, and they would not give you test results over the phone, good or bad. You had to go in, you had to go back to the clinic. To get it. And it was, there were only certain clinics where you could go. And it was, you, you know, nobody wanted to go to their regular doctor because, you know, for insurance purposes, and were you going to get kicked off your insurance? And you didn't know, and you had to pay for it out of your own pocket, and everybody was paying in cash. And it was just very strange. Um, it was this very strange and surreal experience because I remember thinking, oh, this is, this is going to be bad. Because, you know, as much as you intellectually know things happen in the moment and you do things and you think that was a mistake. <laughs> okay. Now I know let's hope and pray. Um, but I, re I re remember specifically kind of getting back on the train and having to not, you know, the test was negative, but I remember getting back on the train and having to go from like Inwood all the way back down to the village and just thinking like, hold it together until you get back into the apartment, girl, just, just keep yourself together. So I remember that, but I was also having a conversation. Um, I work for a comic book publisher and I was having a conversation about this immortal character. And he was, at one point he had worked in Stonewall. And I remember saying, you know, what would be really interesting is to have this character who is a poet, do, you know, he clearly lived through the eighties. You know, you had an entire generation of people entire more than an entire generation of people, poets and artists and actors and all of that, all of that work just never, it was erased or it didn't exist and it just never happened. And, you know, pardon me if I get emotional, but I just remember thinking, um, you know, why don't we ever, are we so far, are we so cynical or are we so far from it? that we've somehow forgotten this is this is in the, my lifetime and i'm mm. i'm old but i'm not old old so you know it's it's sort of like how do we forget you know even you know uh, you know pornography now is you know everybody's just like well i'll just pop a pill and you think whoa how did we come so far in so long it's great but it's also awful that we've forgotten all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's difficult too, because there are, I'm gonna try not to soapbox too much when I say this, but the with the advent of COVID-19, it's really 
interesting how I, uh, the couple of times that I've needed to be out and about doing things when I've been through, you know, a largely populated gay neighborhood. Um, this happened last weekend. Um, I was in Chelsea and these two guys just like walked by where they were holding hands. Neither one of them had a shirt on. And the like, it was like a really quintessentially gay image. Neither one of them had masks on. And it was in Chelsea at like one o'clock in the afternoon. So there was like a lot of people on the street. Like this was like near Chelsea market. Um, and I just thought like, and I, and I don't want to build bridges where they don't belong, but this was a, a situation where I thought we have been as gay men have been for better or worse, have been foisted the responsibility of like stewarding. We're like the representatives of HIV AIDS. Right. And, uh, I just thought like, you guys of all people should know better about a really gnarly, potentially deadly virus. And it just. So this is actually, this is actually really interesting because the story, the, the script started in, in March when everything, before everything shut down in March of 2020. And I in no way, shape or form mean to denigrate the, anyone's passing in the last year. What has happened has been awful and tragic and completely devastating. But I remember before my office shut down um, and people that I worked with were like, I'm not gonna come in, just call me if you need anything. And they were like, you're not afraid to come in. And I was like, I've been through this. If you think that I'm shocked that the government is hiding things from people and not taking things seriously, I'm like, oh, this is your first time. None of you remember 1981. And I remember being really angry and really cynical and idiot that I am, idiot, thought, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm finally going to finish. And the band played on because I've read that book. I've started that book like four (laughs) or five times. And every time I'm like, I can't finish this because I know how it's going to end. It's like watching the Titanic. You're like, I just need one of you to make a slightly different decision and everything's going to be okay. But so that was really where it started. I thought, oh, we're living this again, only now no offense to the heterosexual community, but I thought now you understand what we went through years ago. And yeah, so that was that was kind of where it came from. Have either of you read And the Band Played On? Yes. I have not, no. It's it's really wonderful. He he gets patient zero completely wrong. Um, <laughs> so just so you're aware, it is not like one poor man fault that he blames everything on essentially um there's a lot more to it than that but it's a it's a really wonderful wonderful book there's a lot in it that is infuriating and angering and um i think like every early aids play book there's so much there's a lot of rightful and righteous anger in it um you know i'm assuming you guys have read the normal heart and as is and seen all of that um yeah I mean, have you seen the film version of the and the band played on i mean i did well, and again you know thing but you know it's it's the straight people who are the heroes they're you Let's, know obviously they were the physicians they were the doctors i you know i completely understand it um but anthony if you ever get a chance to read it you should there's a lot of really interesting stuff kind of about how um how there was so much political infighting um Mm. in between um between people in the gay community um and certainly between the rich white men and poor minorities Mm -hmm. um and how sort of um you know i think if you if you watch pose you know if you you know read the normal heart and then watch pose (laughs) <laughs> You'll sort of go, oh, okay, now I get it. It's it's really Which, fascinating. I, I'm I'm so glad that you mentioned that show. I actually have not seen all of Pose, but I, one of the things that I do, and this is sort of going back to the the generational differences. When that show first um, was new, um, 
my my boyfriend at the time was like was super I think I assume is still super into it and I was running going for a run in Riverside Park and uh the I I'm forgive me for not knowing what her name is but the 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 the, the actress that's like the at this in the first season is like in like the super posh apartment uh Dominique Jackson I, I I'm, I'm gonna take your word for it that that's what her name is but she she was like the super glammed up one that had money um I passed her in Riverside Park I think I and she was running too fully made up <laughs> I mean she was still in like workout gear and stuff and she was sweating like she was really going for it but um it was interesting that I passed her and I was like I'm just had seen the first episode of Pose like a couple of days before that. And I was like, oh my God, that's so funny that there she was. Um, but I found it really interesting and really exciting that there were so many 20 somethings and teenage uh, people that were into that show because the HIV AIDS situation and the subjugation of the gay community is a part of that story. Um, so it made me feel at least a little bit comforted that something that is really in vogue right now, that's really celebrated, contains that piece of information. Um, I do actually have to also give that show credit for the fact that it's, you know, the first couple of times that HIV AIDS kind of showed up in pop culture, like in films or whatever, it was like there was no way for the for any scene in any of those movies to not be completely about that. Um, and Pose has managed to execute a, telling a story where that's a prevalent part of it, but that it's not, it doesn't enter the, the scene, every scene before the actors do. Yeah, and to, when I, I just wanna talk about survivors for, Sure. Um, for a second. Um, the thing to me when I was writing this was it was not specifically about AIDS or HIV, obviously it is, but it was much more about how we as human beings define surviving versus living. And, and it was... <sighs> Um, again, not, not to going back to Michael's point, not to tell tales out of school, but I, you know, I would be lying if I said I hadn't gone through really rough times and kind of thought, okay, if I needed to tell my sister or my, you know, someone in my life, okay, I'm, I'm not going to be alive by this time next week. Here's what I need you to know. Um, and, you know, having those conversations with the person who's the executor of your will and who's taking care of like your power of attorney and everything like that. And having those conversations about this is what living is to me. Um, had, have you guys, I don't want to say have you thought about it, but have you sort of defined surviving versus living um, for yourselves and your own experiences? I can jump into that. I think, sure. Listen, I'm a very, um, I'm a spiritual student right now. Um, I'm a student of the Course in Miracles. And you might know Marion Williamson, who was very active when it came to uh, helping those who were struggling with, uh, mm -hmm. with the virus. Um, so how I would describe the difference between, what is it, surviving and living? I think it uh, has to do with, I guess, a sense of principle beyond. Surviving isn't necessarily just sustaining but it is something that is um, ineffable, something that uh, that stands from a place beyond what is measured. So my legacy um, living is just going day to day and just making it through the next moment to moment. Surviving is overcoming, transcending whatever obstacles are faced our way, which is part of the normal uh, everyday living, I guess, circumstance and ennui of human life. And I love that about Stephen is that he does survive with his humor. I think he survives with his, obviously, his hold on to Tom. And perhaps it's codependent or not, but it's his great love for him, um, unrequited or not, that I think is the key to his survival. It's the love. It's the legacy of something that is shared between others and not ne necessarily something that I drudge around um, um, 
in reaction to the everyday obstacles that we are bound to face. I hope that made sense. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's interesting because we do all individually, you know, as much as we always sort of, as much as philosophy exists to tell us moral things aren't relative and that there's this greater morality, this is still something that we're making our own decisions about. You know, we all have to define our own sense of surviving and living and what is it to be those things. She talks um, exactly. She talks about the story where someone got mad at her at one of her meetings and he screamed at her and essentially said, uh, you, I don't feel like you're validating my feelings. And I love her response. She says, it's not that I'm not validating your your feel invalidating your feelings, but I'm validating your capacity to overcome it. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I love that because it's not to say that the problem does not exist. It's there. It's right in our face, but it's what we do with it. It's how we connect with somebody else in order to seek for the solution, something above even the mystery of not even understanding, especially at the time, how are we going to survive this? It seems to be something on a spiritual level beyond the body. It's a mentality. I'm not trying to go to church, but kind of. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's I, I, I'm sorry, Michael, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say, I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah. Stephen was kind of my darkest impulses at times um, in trying to write you know, how, how would I actually justify, justify this? And it's this sense of, to me, Stephen is kind of that, that line of, um, you know, I shouldn't live in pain so that you don't, you don't have to, which seems very selfish, but when you flip it, it's just as selfish on the other side. I don't want you to die so that I don't have to feel pain. Um, and of course, human beings are essentially selfish creatures. The most used word in the English language is I, and then me, you know, those, that is just what it is. Um, that's no shade to human beings. I am one. Um, but, um, but yeah, and, and Tom was everything that I thought, well, how would I, con how would I convince someone who's going through something so terrible that I can understand intellectually, but not emotionally. How would I convince someone there's more than what you're saying? Right. It's uh, interesting. It's interesting because the, uh, the, the, one of the things that I love about the dynamic between those two people is that from, from as objectively as I can say this, um, it's, and this was something that I, I felt this after the first time that I read it. And I thought about this pretty much through the entire process of recording it is there was a little ego oriented voice in my head that kept thinking, it's a shame that the one that is on the edge, that's on the precipice, that's like at death's door is the one that knows how to have fun, that knows how to like suck the marrow out of a day. And the one who's basically been nose down, you know, closed, you know, folded his wings and sort of let himself kind of atrophy inside is the one that's completely healthy. Um, and that is oftentimes, I mean, that in the experience that I've had talking to some of the men of the, that were of age during the, the height of the um, AIDS epidemic, that was a very common tale that I had, I've heard, heard a couple of men say that, you know, they came from sort of really repressed backgrounds and then they made the pilgrimage to San Francisco or New York or wherever to kind of finally be themselves. But be, be, their hangups were so deeply ingrained in them that when it became public knowledge that the way that this disease was getting transmitted, they, had a familiar rock to hide under. And so there was like a, a plus and a negative to that situation. And that they're, they, I think in some ways explains, I think as Michael Cunningham says this in the hours that there's this pervasive, I think he was writing about Chelsea, but this is, I think it's now since migrated to Hell's Kitchen, but the, 
the parade of gay guys that try to physically emulate the bullies that picked on them in high school. Yeah. Um, so they, you know, you'll come across like these like roided out 55 year old men with like bright pink Chuck Taylors and like a baseball cap worn sideways and like just things that I'm like, you are you wearing a costume? No judgment to people that dress that way, but it's just interesting that the writing is on the wall. Yeah. Um, and it's, again, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to think about. I think you said this a second ago about the sort of the, the, the artists that we lost or the ones that never really got to have their voices bloom because they were taken way early. So speaking of repression, actually, there was an Edmund White essay in Edmund White, brilliant writer, writer of Boys on Story, um, there was an essay that he did in The Advocate. I had just moved into New York, so I want to say it was 96, 97, somewhere in there. Um, and I remember he wrote something that I was got really shocked about. And I said something to my roommate, and my roommate was like, yeah, it's true. Um, but he said, essentially, anyone who made it through the 70s and 80s, if you didn't get AIDS, you were either too ugly or too oppressed to get laid. And I remember just being like really shocked and thinking like, did that just happen? I'm sure he was saying it just for a fact. I'm sure I'm paraphrasing that. Yeah. He's a big Um, fan of, um, my my one encounter with with Ed White, I was a a judge for the Pharaoh Gremley for three years, which is a, it's an LGBT uh, prize for fiction. This is with the publishing triangle. And I think it was my last year serving as a judge. And uh, there's a there's an award, I think, that's named for him. Um, and he was available to come down from Canada, right? Is where he lived. I think um, so. And so he came, he was in New York. He was at the thing. And I was like thinking like, oh, I, I need to say, I need to say something to him. So I did. And it was, it was, it was like being at an opening of like a David Mamet play and having him just like drop 15 F-bombs on you where it's like, oh, this is exactly what, how I pictured you. It, it, he said something, I don't even remember what it was, but it was something he looked at me and just said like the most direct, like saucy, R-rated, verging, verging on something more intense than that thing about the way I was dressed. And I was like, um yeah I think that's the thing is that the I think that that's something that's a bummer and obviously it's not I don't think that that's the truth but um, yeah I don't think it's true but I you know I came I came out in I guess 1990 or something like that and I remember sort of having the specter of it hanging over my head actually let me just kind of go back to a general question for for one second do you guys remember sort of the first the first thing that you read where there were queer characters and you were like, oh, oh, now I get it. Now I understand what's happening inside of my own head and my own heart. Do you remember that? I, I do. Angels in America comes right to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael, if you want to jump in as I peruse that thought. God, I, I don't, I, I had sort of like hippy dippy parent like the <laughs> like I, I'm my middle name is from my my I think it was a friend of really close friend of my father's who died of of AIDS um my straight father was his buddy was a gay guy like it was the that stuff was not um but the first time that I felt I, I mean the picture of Dorian Gray probably was the first time that I I mean I was 14 I think when I read that book and I don't think that I fully understood how much subtext was in that story, but when I read it that first time, but uh, yeah, Basil Hallward sort of confessing his, like I worshiped you speech in the picture of Dorian Gray to Dorian, that I think was the first time where I was like, oh yeah, not only, do I relate to the fact that he's a man into another man, but I also relate to the fact that he's doormatting himself. Um, uh, which that's, I mean, I, I laugh, but that's that's also a very common trope in with gay men, right? It's sort of like can be a, a byproduct of that 
subjugation is that when you finally Margaret Cho had this really great joke that she years ago where she was talking about um, gay men and their sort of their relationship to sex. Uh, and she said that, um, I think what she said was when you're hated and repressed for who you want to fuck, when you finally go and do it, you're going to kick up your heels and fuck. And <laughs> uh, I, and I remember thinking, like, I laughed about that, but then I also immediately was like, that's like half the story. Like, there's the other part of it where <laughs> like, there's uh, the other half does the opposite, where there's just so much shame that. I yeah, think but I, th I think, I think, um, and this may be a generational thing because I, it's changed, but I mean, you know, when I was growing up, the divas were you know, it was Betty Davis and it was Joan Crawford and it was Marilyn Monroe and it was Judy Garland and it was everyone who suffered. And, you know, I mean, you had Betty Davis who was still tough as nails and you had Joan Crawford who was still tough as nails, but they still went through a whole fuck ton of bullshit. Um, mm -hmm. Pardon my language. Um, you know, and then of course, Marilyn and Judy who God, God love them. And I, I think that's changed as I, I think, um, you know, we've we've entered sort of a new era of what still feels like saving, saving, fighting the same fights, um, just in different battlegrounds. Um, yeah, I, it's the, the nuances today are, are, are it's interesting because we this is coupled with uh, contemporary culture where our attention span is out the window. So. Uh, people get burned out much faster on a particular story. So if you, like, I remember in, in 2015, when, uh, when the marriage equality stuff happened, um, I was really emotional. It sort of took me by surprise about how emotional I got that day. And I was in a, I was in an office with two straight women. And I was just like all day, just kept getting upset. Like I would forget for a little while, I'd get distracted, and then it would like, occur to me again, and then I would get upset again. I mean, I mean, these were like joyful tears, right? But they're, um, and it was interesting because one of those women, sort of, every time that I got upset, she would sort of um, not make fun. Actually, she was making fun of me, kind of about it. She was like, and she said, "You're single. Why do you care?" And I remember thinking and and saying. This is like slavery abolished women getting the right to vote kind of stuff. Up until today, I was, and I didn't think I really articulated this until I was saying it. Uh, I'm up until this morning, I was less than you in the eyes of the rest of the world. And I don't think that I realized that like that notion of the, the, gay men being or gay women being shamed or trans men or trans women being sh feeling ashamed of themselves. That's not a fucking joke. Like it's, it, it's very difficult to get past that. Anytime that I meet a, a gay person or any person from the LGBTQIA um, community that has managed to bringing this back to your, your piece managed to survive in some version of being intact on the other side of it, their shame, I want to kiss their feet. I don't think it, to me, when I was writing this, I don't remember feeling that either one of these characters had shame necessarily. Um, did you feel that way with either of the ones that you were playing? I did. I, yeah, I think so. I, I don't I don't know if it's on the nose. I think it's underneath. Yeah. And I felt like that is a reality as well. I mean, not that that it was a stigma. It is a stigma. And also it's a it's a one way of kind of dealing perhaps with the anger of of what this is, of having my life being lost to this disease and my government not representing me. There's an internalized shame. I'll be the whole monologue about the mom slapping me and the identity of oh. of feeling like I am clearly not accepted. That that there's is it? I think the question underneath the child self of anyone who's trying to survive, which is exists within all of us, is 
is there something wrong with me? Yeah. Did I deserve this? And, and, and I think that that is why the piece is so beautiful in its compassion that it's in spite of that fear, which is such a reality and such a metaphor for anybody in particular crises. You know what I mean? Whether it's someone who was a slave or, you know, women didn't have a right to vote or whatever, you fill in the blank when it comes to feeling disenfranchised or not knowing your own sense of freedom, um, that you're able to reach for humor, you reach for somebody else or just reach for something beyond the, uh, the darkness to seek for that light. We're back to church. <laughs> uh, so, right. so I would say, yeah. I, like it here. Um, I, I think the, yeah. And, and um, John, the other thing I think that's, it, it's like what Anthony just said, I think kind of ties to what I said a couple of minutes ago, but how the, their shame, uh, A, it manifests in two completely different ways. Um, partially because of their essential who they are as human beings, not the same. And their upbringings are the same. Their experiences of coming to terms with their gayness is not the same, is not the same. Um, but it, to me, the way that I saw it when I first read the script and, and even when Anthony and I, when we were performing it was that, and this is the way that I see men who lived through the, AIDS um, epidemic when it was at its height is that they handled it and these two guys handle it kind of the way that like a Vietnam vet would handle the existence of the Vietnam War with another Vietnam vet is that they don't necessarily have to talk about it and they most likely would not bring it up, but it is, it does exist there. And they may not necessarily be riddled with it every and crippled by it every day, but it does inform. And again, like, it's kind of interesting that the, the fact that you, you drafted these two characters that Anthony's character, forgive me for making the supposition, but that uh, Anthony, but like he comes across as a person who would kick up his heels and fuck. And, oh yeah. Whereas Those, my character, was that. Was, yeah. Whereas my character is not that way. And, and probably, um, and I think this is another really beautiful thing that you accomplish in the story too, is that they're, they're both envious of certain qualities that the other one exhibits, knowing, like when he, my, one of my favorite parts of the story is when he says like, I want you to, when he gives it, says I'm leaving you money. And he's like, where would I go? Where would I travel? Like the fact that he says that, where would I go? Um, you're- Which anywhere like you could go anywhere but then when he tells him like go to Mykonos and like wear a speedo on the beach and and flirt with uh, with somebody or preferably multiple somebody's it's one of those things where his reaction and again I loved the way that you detail his response is the book part sounds great the beach part sounds great and he can't bring himself to acknowledge the other part yeah there's there tends to be, psychologists talk about this a lot, when someone has made the decision and made the plan to end their life, there is a kind of euphoria that kicks in because there's going, I see an end to this pain that I am, that I am living with. Um, and I, you know, I, I do believe, you know, I'm, I'm not, apologies for the, the <laughs> motorcycle outside of my apartment. They're so um, loud. They're everywhere. It's they very loud. It's very loud. Um, but I, I do, you know, I, I'm not a psychologist, but I have seen that in people where behavior changes very quickly. And it's, it's this very strange, like, why am I suddenly on alert that you've gone from zero to 60 in 30 seconds flat? Um, so I, one of the things that interests me is um me as a writer speaking to actors is that a lot of times um, writers say, oh, well, this is my baby. And to me, it's sort of like, it's not really my baby, it's my college age student because I'm letting it go into the world. Like, I, I'm not a, it's not a baby where I have to protect it. I'm letting it go into the world and it's gonna interact on its own and I don't have anything. So I sort of tend to not answer 
Kelly, I'm sure I infuriate uh, Kelly, <laughs> the director, because he'll ask me questions and I'm like, I don't, whatever. Um, <laughs> and I remember Michael, you specifically asking me a question um, about that speech about gladiator movies and Steve Reeves. And I was oh, trying yeah. to not really answer it because I was trying to be very <laughs> practical in my head. However, at this time, if there's any weird questions that you guys have, like, why the heck did this person do this? Why did they do that? I can now, now that it's done, now that the production's out there in the world, I can tell you. <laughs> can I can I just say though, to John's point that like, yes, it is shot is it borders on abuse. Like he birthed this <laughs> thing and then he's like, I don't fucking do whatever you I don't give a shit. Like it's awful. Like it's a it's a college age student that's like Gonna have to go to some therapy is all I'm saying, John. You just abandoned it so thoroughly. Listen, for everyone out there who is a parent, I'm gonna give you some advice. Every day that your child, from the day that your child is born, every day put $1 in a jar. And when the kid turns 18, hand them the jar and say, this is for any therapy you might need. I did the best I knew how. That is a brilliant decision. You were right. I'm really sorry. Yes. Just so you're acknowledging it also to all the parents out there, don't throw a one-year-old a birthday party. Give them a huge box that is filled with nothing but wrapping paper. They won't remember, they won't care, but they will have a really good time <laughs> doing that for years. Exactly. And you can film it. Yeah. And you will get much more enjoyment out of watching that video than you would about I need to make sure there's 12 cupcakes with things on the tops because my friends are bringing their infants to the, who are also <laughs> this party. Yeah. No one-year-old's going to remember their party. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> but are, you know, my is there anything that success. happened in the script? I'm sorry, Cal. My one-year-old party was a damn success. Screw you all. Okay. <laughs> you throw Laurel a, a, a birthday party? Oh, Christ. Christ, no, I was talking about my own personal one. I still remember oh. who attended, what they brought. You're not fooling me. Right, yeah. <laughs> I, John, to, for the record, I completely agree. Birthday <laughs> birthday parties up to the age of about three are only for parents. The yeah. kid yeah. does not give a damn. That's no. like when when you, like people who celebrate their, like as adults celebrate their birthday parties and like their chief objective is to get hammered. I'm like, this is your, you don't want to remember it? Like, like I want to be there. Like, I'll decide when I'm, it just was interesting. It's just always interesting to me when people want to tune out. But um, uh, to, answer, to answer your question, I don't, I think that the story was so self-explanatory that um, even those moments at the very, very beginning, and I'm talking about the very first time we got this script and like reading it and not knowing anything about what the story was about, where it was going. Even those exchanges where they're in two different, like I think one's in the kitchen and one's in the living room, right? Um, where you, you're, as the audience, you're meant to be disoriented. Um, even those things, there was a, an essential quality of the story that it was clear that you as the writer were in the driver's seat. Like there was never a moment where I felt like, Oh, he lost control of the like the, the story got away from him, or the ending doesn't stick its landing. Like there was never, in my opinion, a moment where that where it was confusing. Oh, thank you. Ditto, ditto. <laughs> um, a lot of that has to go to Kelly and Matthew, who there were there were a lot of this was the only script that did not change significantly from the first idea that popped into my head until the draft. And I usually send like the second or third draft of my version to Kelly and Matthew as their first read. Um, this was the only one that did not change significantly. I was like, this is what the story is about. Um, but there were a lot of things where they were like, You're, you, you made the point, you made the point. <laughs> just you you can cut this page you can cut you know all of this stuff um but i i i am i am very glad i will say um that when kelly was talking about casting he said do you have um any actors in mind and i said well no um i said what i would like is people who identify as lgbtq um because i don't i I feel like there is a share, there's almost a Jungian mentality 
on some level that's not shared in the larger culture. Again, another motorcycle um, <laughs> that's not shared because it does feel like um, it feels like there is a bit of history that always gets passed on no matter what, because you know at, the coming out process is much easier now in 2021 than it was in 1990, than it was in 1965, than it was in 1955. But I don't think it's less difficult, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Less difficult. Can you explain? The, the sort of understanding of who, of who you are, the, the, the process, you know, people think, oh, well, you told your, your parents, you came out. And it's like, actually, you know, coming out really for me was like, when I was first going, what is different about me? I don't oh, understand oh, it. Yeah. Sure. So yeah, I, I think that there is something shared about that. Am I incorrect about that? Maybe I'm incorrect about that. No, oh, I think that that's totally true. I, I also, I think the, the, I think it goes without saying that the, in some parts of the, depends on what the, ge the geography plays a part in that too, that certain parts of the country, it's still just as difficult as it was in 1950. Like the, you know what I mean? Like you can go to some rural parts of the country, for example, and actually some cosmopolitan parts of the country where it's still a big no-no. Um, uh, because if, if it weren't, uh, Michelle Bachman's husband would not exist. Like, <laughs> you know, like the, uh, and, and again, even in places as up to present day and contemporary as New York and Los Angeles. I mean, there I was just having a conversation with somebody about this the other day about actors in Hollywood that still, that are gay, who still can't, they just can't because they're afraid of the, maybe the damage that it would do to their career. Like there still is a concern about that. And, um, and I think it's probably going to be a while before that goes the way of all things. Um, yeah. The play also feels very private in a sense between two gay men sharing an experience. It's not to say that straight actors cannot do it, but I think it's, uh, it speaks to the sensitivity and the sensibility of the intimacy that I think is serviced really nicely when you do have real, uh, real uh you two gay men who can yeah. understand that 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 style that in between empty space that energy that tone the you know what we're talking about it's the stuff that we understand yeah <laughs> it, it's, i think there's 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 also i mean it's not to say that there is, there is something i'm spe we're speaking in generalities obviously when we're talking about this but that a a, a straight man playing a gay man is not there's there's something a value there there is something like there maybe to there's something to the objectivity that where they're not maybe might be less precious about certain things and um but there's also a different set of again speaking in generalities there's a, a potential like anthony like you just said there's a shared emotional vocabulary um that it's the same reason why when you can walk down the street and make passing eye contact with somebody and immediately in a second, no, I know what your deal is. And without having to observe the way they're dressed maybe, or, you know, who they're with or what they're doing where there's a, you can have, and I think we've all had that, like that first moment when you're a young person, when you have a, maybe an older person looks at you that way and you first have your mutant powers activated where you're like, oh, I also somehow understand you. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. and, it's a, and it's a great privilege as well. And it's not to say that anybody who is straight or not is not caring of these issues nor of not forthright with advocating for change. It's just that, um, it's a beautiful thing that you said in terms of it's something inherited in a sense, you know, I didn't, I didn't choose to be gay, but what a wonderful, I didn't say this as Anthony to you to a privilege and opportunity in order to have uh, 
been a part of this reading of survivors because in a way it reminded me of our history, which isn't just unique just as gay men, but it also is special as well because I do identify as a gay man. And for me to be reminded and to be aware, to be woke and to be compassionate towards that history and how it is uh, to be honored and respected and to to hold past that torch and to remember as we go forward that the fight is not over. Um, I'm grateful to be a part of it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, you know, I wonder, despite sort of the names project and the quilt project and all that, I wonder if, you know, 40 years from now, there will be in the, you know, a wing of the Smithsonian dedicated to people who passed from HIV and their journals mm-hmm. and their pictures and their, their works. Um, and I think it's one of those things that's very difficult and again, one of the reasons that I I, I specifically wanted um, a- actors who identified as as queer on some level, or who identified as queer uh, on some level, what I wanted was this sort of. It's hard to, it the same way that it's hard for someone. Um, that history that gets passed on and that history of understanding what was lost. It is very easy when you can turn to someone of a a generation a little bit older than you, familial or friend and go, oh, tell me about what it was like to be, you know, this, you know, I, you know, I, I was adopted, but I have, you know, I was adopted, my parents are white. I am um, multiracial, I'm African-American and white. Um, But, you know, I had, my parents had friends who I could kind of turn to and go, tell me what was it like to be black in the 1950s and 60s? I wanna talk about that. But you sort of realize there's this whole gigantic piece of the puzzle that's missing when as a queer person you go, what was it like to be queer in the 80s? You sort of go, ah, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. I don't know, yeah. Um, you know, because they're, you know, the, that generation isn't here any longer. Um, now that I've depressed us all. No, <laughs> no inspired. Inspired, um, that's the other side of that coin. Yeah, but I do, I mean, you guys found some amazing, wonderful humor in there and things that I just thought, I lines that I wrote where I was like, nobody's gonna understand this is hysterical the way that I think it's hysterical. And you guys were like, no, we got you. We got you. This is funny. I think there's something, first of all, I think part of that is a testament to, I think your skill uh, as a writer is absolutely kudos uh, first deserved uh, there. Uh, and, And then I think the other thing too, is that this being in a situation like that, navigating an impossible and invisible murderer, you know, um, where at any moment the, you know, the ax could come for you. The tension is so hot. You have to laugh. Like otherwise the, and then the other thing too, one of my favorite moments about listening to the recording yesterday uh, was, I don't remember exactly what they were talking about, but there was a point where, they started, I think Anthony, your character says something like he was asking about a, a friend, something about something that happened on Fire Island, and they both mm-hmm. burst into laughter, and then it metamorphoses into tears very shortly afterwards. Um, and there's a moment where the reverse happens, and it's the I think the the one moment I'm thinking of is the go to Mykonos and read on a beach and everything, and my character is weeping and starts to laugh kind of in the midst of that. I think that it's one of the, my favorite parts about what you wrote is that the humor and the tragedy could swim in the same pool um, because we've all been in projects or seen films or movies or you know plays or whatever where the writer and the creative team are not taking care of the audience at all. And you're just subjecting us to like, it's just basically two hours of nonstop misery. Um, 
And then the, and the flip side is true too. This is the reason why there are like comedies that work and comedies that don't. You know, one of the reasons that Bridesmaids worked so well is that there was an emotional investment made by something that was horrible, right? Like her life is a shit show and it's not a joke but it makes the stuff that the ridiculous stuff that happens later, like that beautiful scene with Melissa McCarthy, when she comes to her house and basically like forces her physically, that is ridiculous, but she means it. There's a reason why she got an Oscar nomination for that role, right? Like it's ridiculous, but it's heartfelt. Yeah. Um, uh, So we're almost at the hour. There's one question that I want to ask. Do you guys think that they were in love? At the, you know, at the end. I'm trying to know Anthony's answer to this. <laughs> uh, uh, go ahead, Michael. What do you think, Mike? My- <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't, I, don't I don't know what your answer is going to be, but I'm dying to hear it. Oh, the, can you ask it one more time, John? Just yeah. <laughs> do you think they were in love at the end? You know, do you think they were in love, whether it was just for a short time or whether they end this piece in love? I think that love is as a, a fully, it's obviously a really large, you know, definition. So I think, yes, 100% in love with this man, who he is, who he has been to me, the sex that we have had, the kiss that I still long for. But at the same time, there's a sense of acceptance as well, that it isn't meant to be. So I don't think that, that it's a, uh, a love that is unaware of the the maturity of how they are in obviously two separate places. But I say yes, 100% in love to the end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I think that the, I agree completely with what he's, what Anthony just said that the, um, the definition, whether it's, what are the words eros and like, there's like a series of words that used to be sort of defined. I feel like the eros era of their love is, exists in the past. Um, I definitely think that it, uh, that it was, that it did exist um, and uh, lives in their memory. I don't think that either one of them are in any rush to forget that that was part of their history. Um, but, and, and it's, I think it's most obvious evident in, for me in those moments where, when they say like, this is why we, why I broke up with you, or this is why, like, and they're, they're, each of them have a very clearly different definition about why their relationship didn't work out on the surface. I think that they both have a shared understanding of like Anthony, like you just said, that their lives went in two completely different directions, um, not because of the illness, mm-hmm. um, but in that way that you get sort of wistful, um, you know, whenever you sort of think about an, of like a former relationship that didn't work out and you think like, oh, it's a shame. Like, it wasn't really that bad. Like, I wonder where he is. Like, like you think about those things. I think, unfortunately, in their present, anytime either one of them has that wistful feeling, the disease is there. Um, And so it makes it complicated for them to, um, it's sort of like when people, when you go to like, when oftentimes it's kids, but when people will ask like, would Romeo and Juliet have stayed together if they had survived? Like, that's a stupid question. Pardon my ruining anybody's life from (laughs) that question, but it's just like, they died. So it's an immaterial question. Like it kind of, the asking of that invalidates, like it pulls the rug out from the, three hours of the play, it's sort of the same kind of thing. Like, would they have ended up together if, you know, he wasn't sick? It's an impossible question to ask because he got sick. Yeah. Um, so we do so. end on a happy note where we're talking yeah. about love. Um, yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so this has been the pick apart for survivors. Um, thank you, <laughs> Anthony and Michael for joining us. Thank you. Um, as was said at the beginning of the, um, the play itself, um, if you or anyone that you are close to is going through a difficult time, please reach out to your local crisis center. Um, you know, I can only speak for myself, but, you know, living is 
the most beautiful, precious gift that we have. Okay, now that was my, that was me going to church. Beautiful, yeah. That was me going to church.